Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, today, our co-host, Rachel Frank, had a family emergency, so she's not able to join us. So I'll be doing this solo, but we've got a great show for you. I should first mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the universities or, the universities or institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a great episode for you. We're going to do a point-counterpoint episode on the treatment of distal biceps tendon tears. I've invited three experts, each of whom is going to give their perspective on this injury and its treatment. First, we have Mark Mile from the Florida Orthopedic Institute in Tampa. Dr. Mile is the senior author on a GSCS series of 170 distal biceps tendon repairs with a 1.2% failure rate, and he told me he's performed over 400 distal biceps tendon repairs at this point. Dr. Mile, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Next, we have Dr. John Fernandez from Midwest Orthopedics in Rush in Chicago. Dr. Fernandez is one of the authors on the original description of the single incision endobutton technique and personally taught me most of what I know about how to perform this procedure. So I think he's going to be a great addition here to our panel. Dr. Fernandez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. And then finally, we have Dr. Chris Schmidt from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Schmidt is the author on Factors that Determine Supination Strength Found on Distal Biceps Tendon Repair in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, among many other important studies in this area. As far as I can tell, he's the only author to have a Journal of, journal of Bone and Joint Surgery paper on this subject, at least in the past decade. So, Dr. Schmidt, we welcome your opinion. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. All right. Let's get started. So Dr. Mile, I, I wanted to start with you. You know, you've performed so many of these procedures. I want to share with us three pearls of things you've learned in those 400 disciplices repairs, so things you've learned the hard way. Three pearls. I would think the first thing would be that the soonest you can get the patient to the OR with the distal bicep rupture, the better. And I, I say that because when you have an individual that you operate on that maybe is only three weeks out. If the lacertus uh, fails and the tendon retracts proximally, it can be quite difficult. So I think that if you're a young surgeon, this isn't a case that you schedule a month down the road. If, when I see these patients come in, I try to get them scheduled within the week. Uh, pearl number two is that I think it's a mistake to make, and we can have some discussion of this, but to make a transverse incision. It's cosmetic. It looks nice but it's not extensile and it oftentimes stretches the lateral interbrachial cutaneous nerve if you're doing a one incision technique and or you can get a PIN palsy uh, if you're having to retract hard to see the tuberosity because when you make that incision, it doesn't always fall exactly where you think it should be. The, the third thing that I would say on chronic cases where I've had to either do a high flexion angle or to do a, an interposition graft, an allograft tendon, do that through a large incision. Because when you have the chronic tears, the soft tissues tend to be pulled medial, and they can often be scarred to the neurovascular bundle. Uh, luckily, I have not had a problem there, but I, it's very, very close. And if you're trying to do that through a smaller incision, you could get into trouble. So I think in the, the more chronic cases where you're going to do high flexion angle or you're going to do an allograft tendon, uh, you should be cautious of the neurovascular bundle. Those are uh, just ph phenomenal tips. Um, 
the Fernandez, certainly that first one is one that I remember you telling me in residency. What others would you add? Well, I mean, just to pair it uh, off of what Mark was saying, uh, you know, as I get older, my incisions actually in a way get longer. Um, and the truth is what I've noticed is that the, you know, longitudinal incision in, in, in most of my patients is actually equally, if not more cosmetic than the transverse incision. And so I think that that's a super important tip because there's this there's this thinking that we still have to do these through a transverse incision. And I've even seen transverse incisions used, you know, more distally over the tuberosity. And I think it's a mistake. You also have to think about the future. If you have to revise it, that's not going to be an easy incision to revise through. This is just not something you want to struggle with, you know, just because you want to save the uh, a cosmetic incision. And I would argue that it's just as cosmetic, if not a more cosmetic in some ways. Uh, and so I think that that's a, that's a really important um, uh, pearl. And I would also add to that in terms of saying, with that incision, uh, I take the time to identify the lateral and brachiocutaneous nerve and really do a good mobilization proximally and distally over a very long segment of that nerve because as you naturally retract to get your deeper exposure, you're going to have traction on the nerve. That's why the incidence of, you know, these nerve injuries and palsies is so high because you're trying to do it through a small incision in some cases, and so the incidence goes way up. It makes a proper incision and you mobilize the nerve, uh, then that, that risk goes down significantly. And obviously, the amount of time that passes from when the injury occurred to when you take it to the OR, just like Mark was saying, even even getting them within a week makes a difference versus getting them at two to three weeks. And I think that there's been some studies that have even shown that in terms of data. So so I think that those are really, really important points. I would add to that, like I said, you know, mobilizing the nerve uh, as you get the exposure. Um, I, I, you know, I've taught you, Peter, to, that the whole operation, in my opinion, is the approach. Repairing the tendon is easy and it's quick and it's simple once you've got the exposure. It's the exposure that's the whole case. And so part of it is also getting good vascular control, taking down the recurrent vessels, not trying to, you know, not take down a vessel and stretching it and then tearing it and then having bleeding throughout the case. Um, you know, using, I use automatic clip appliers um, to get down through the soft tissues and down through the vessels to make sure that that I'm, 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 I'm not gonna be constrained by any of the vessels. So I think, you know, if you want to lump that into exposure, that's super critical with treatment of these, whether they're acute, but especially if they're chronic. I love the idea of using clips. That's a that is a great little little tip there. I've been using silk ties, and that would certainly be quicker and probably more reliable to use clips. What about you, Dr. Schmidt? Anything else you would add? Other things you've seen or realizations you've made in your research or clinical experience? Yeah, well, I think the the big thing that I, I differ from from John. I started out uh, with a, doing a one incision anterior approach, and what I realized is I wasn't hitting a, a footprint when I, I did post op MRIs. Had a couple people early on that were weak, and uh, of course, you know the the biceps healed, and um, and I repaired their uh, cosmetic deformity, but they had a supination lag. So then I, I got a, we got an MRI and it turned out, you know, the, the start of this whole thing where you put it on the, on the uh, tuberosity really matters. And so if you, uh, if you, we went in the lab and if you, there's a protuberance and uh, it's in the JBGS article in I think 2015, it's a mechanical study. 
but there's actually a bump just anterior to the footprint. And if you drill out that bump, you lose about, in a lab, about 30% of supination moment arm. So that, that bump is actually as a mechanical supination cam. And it, it turns out that if you look at other people's studies like uh, Formorth uh, from Baltimore, that the average population, 40% of the people have a hyperpronated um, tuberosity. So even if you go anteriorly and try to hypersupinate it, to get the tuberosity up there, their findings were that 40% of them, you couldn't hit the tuberosity of the footprint. You couldn't hit the footprint with a straight guide pin. And then there's been two other studies, cadaver study, that showed that. And then there was two studies that kind of looked clinically at that with post-op MRIs to show where the footprint uh, repair was. And it's really hard to do it posteriorly. So, so the main pearl is, as John said, you really have to, you have to expose the footprint. And, and you can get lucky and, and get that footprint exposed anteriorly in about 60% of people, and then the other 40%, you may have to struggle. And I think that's where the, the nerve palsies come in. You can't quite get the guide pin over the footprint as you're cranking on the on the you know the lateral muscle mass and the lateral and percutaneous nerve and also you know a recent study from Philadelphia the, the the radial sensory nerve gets also gets a nerve palsy so so I found it easier just to go posteriorly and initially the way it it was described by Dr. Mori is you just put a you know a Kelly and you go from front to back but if you it's it's way easier and and it's it you you avoid the posterior nerve if you just split the extensor carpi ulnaris. And you look at the acaneus, the extensor carpi ulnaris is kind of bland. And then the EDC, or the extensor germ commonus, is striped. And just go between the, the two, the acaneus and the EDC, and it puts you right at the, the supinator. And you just turn the arm and you feel the tuberosity. You split the supinator that, you know, that two centimeters at most, and it puts you directly down onto the footprint. So what I've learned is I, I, I did a 180. I was an anterior guy for 14 years, realized I wasn't getting the results I wanted. And we went in the lab and now I do, I go, I both posteriorly. And we looked at where the nerves are and everything. I actually think it's safer going posterior because I present a paper at, <clears throat> at the shoulder and elbow side and then the nerve crosses a line from the electron to radial styloid. And if you stay in the in the proximal one third of that line, you'll never hit the nerve as long as you're in the uh, ECU. If you go into the EDC or if you go um, more anterior, I guess, you know, if you go in the EDC, the nerve comes closer because it kind of crosses at an angle. So, you know, I, I, I parrot everybody, what everybody says. I just want to make sure people know that a distal biceps tendon can be repaired chronically. A lot of times it's completely ruptured. It's in a cocoon and you can pull it out. And it can be, you know, sometimes you get lucky and it's three months and you can repair them primarily, but like Mark was referring to in, in high flexion. There's a good paper from Graham King's group that shows there's no difference. And, and it's, uh, it kind of refutes what we think uh, from um, about the, the Buffalo group, where chronic repairs have the same complication rate as acute repairs. 
So again, it parrots what Dr. Fernandez says, is that this could be a difficult operation if you're not really sure of your anatomy and you use small incisions. And so just for sure you need larger incisions for safety. So that's about it. So I, 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 I read your paper and think this is such an interesting concept. One of the things you talked about in your paper is that, you know, that angle you talked about getting the tendon farther around the radius is important for supination strength. You also talked about damage to the supinator and supinator atrophy being important. So can you give us some tips on not damaging the supinator when you make a second incision? Yeah, so so the supinator is did come out statistically significant as a as a factor in um in decreased supination strength. The position was more important than the supinator, but like uh you know uh many many fold more. But um but what I do is is after I cut through the ECU, I put my finger uh where I think tuberosity is and I just feel it. And you can feel it. You have to go through you go through ECU and then there's this fascia and we dissect it down and what it is, it's it's actually the lateral elbow complex and you split it. People don't get instability, but there's a fascia band there. You split it and, it, and it, you can see the crossing fibers of supinator. You put your finger on that and you just pronate and supination the, the arm at 90 degrees and you'll feel the, the, the tuberosity and you just cut right over the tuberosity. And it's about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters. And so you're just cutting the supinator. I cut straight down with a pair of, pair of scissors. I don't try to divide it. It comes straight down. Now, I was at a meeting with Sean O'Driscoll, and uh, he told me he could divide the fibers if he doesn't cut the supinator. So maybe that's a possibility, too. I have never done that. I've always cut right through it. So I, I think, yeah, I think that contributes some weakness. But it's the, the most important thing is that you hit the, hit the footprint, I think, and you keep the camp. Which is a which is a protuberance. Now, Dr. Mile, you've you've done hundreds of these, and it sounds like you're primarily using a single incision technique. Do do you have any pearls for avoiding supination weakness in a single incision technique? Have you have you had patients in those 400 where they've come back and said, "I don't have all the strength that I want," and you found this to be an issue, or no? Well, I think, you know, what uh, Chris was talking about is true that, you know, some of the cases it is not possible to get all the way over to the actual footprint. Uh, but I, I wouldn't use a levered retractor to do that. I think that the mistake is, and uh, we wrote a paper on complications with PIN palsies, and I think one of the biggest issues is a levered retractor or a Homan placed lateral where someone cranks down and you'll get a PIN palsy. So we use a right angle retractor, an Army Navy or something of that nature to prevent that. When you ask me if I've had patients, I'm sure there's been patients that haven't had all the supination strength, but they haven't come, that hasn't become an issue during the clinical encounter. Now, I, I usually when patients are doing well around six months, you know, I've, I release them back to go back to the gym and do things. And I, I do have some people that follow up in the year, but to be honest with you, most of the patients by six months are doing reasonably well. They're pleased with their overall outcome. And I, I haven't heard a lot of people telling me, hey, doc, I, I can't supinate the way I used to. I mean, I've got these guys, I see them. I used to go to the gym a little bit more than I do now at this point in my life. But a lot of those patients are back at the gym working out and lifting. Uh, there's kind of a 
uh, a gym culture in the Tampa Bay area. So that most of you know, people I see are oftentimes going to one of these gyms. I think what Chris is talking about, and if you query the patients, I suspect if you had them come back in a year and specifically looked at supination strength, you would find a difference, and he's proven that. But I think from just a patient go back to the gym, work out, culture, uh, I don't get that, or they don't come back in a year or two years and say, you know, Dr. Mile, I've been trying to work out and I've lost this supination strength. The other thing is that in our society, when I was a resident, supination strength was a big deal, and supination was a big deal because there was a lot more carrying and less keyboard work. We've gone from palms up to palms down in our everyday workstation. So my kids give me a hard time when I call it computer work because it's just work. But you're pronating a lot more now than we used to. So that's another thing that if you were carrying logs or carrying loads or had your palms up, uh, that may, in fact, play a role when people are carrying things. And so I think the way we live our lives has changed. I haven't seen it as a huge problem or I because I, I, I you know, wholeheartedly agree with a lot of Chris's philosophy, but I just haven't seen this as a problem in my patients. And if I had enough people coming in and saying, hey, you know, I really don't like this, maybe I would change. But I just haven't seen that. And what about you, Dr. Fernandez? I know, at least when I was there, you were still using a one-in-session technique and have been a proponent of it. T tell us, if you if you have supination weakness complaints, do, do you think this is a... Um, is something that maybe maybe is seeing us and we're not seeing it, or is it maybe something that's subclinical? No, I think first of all, you know, it needs to be said that Chris has probably done more uh, for the science of distal biceps tendon uh, repair, anatomy, uh, biomechanics than anybody uh, has in years, if not being the most prolific, uh, you know, researcher in this area. And so um, uh, everything that Chris said is absolutely true, and he's proved it, you know, three or four different ways, uh, you know, in cadavers with MRI scans, uh, with uh, dissection studies, and now clinically, and not just him, there's, there, there have been other papers that have shown some, um, you know, clinical measures showing a difference. But again, it's important to, to uh, state, uh, and Chris has done a very good job of, you know, uh, being very transparent about it, that the loss of supination strength is really towards the end. You know, it's after neutral or a little bit after neutral uh, where, you where it starts to drop off. And it does drop off significantly. But it's also important to note, you know, if you're comparing, and, and Chris goes beyond that because he does even a more elegant repair in terms of repairing the short head and the long head separately to their own footprints, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's truly an anatomic repair. The, the, what I would argue with is, is it necessary? Because not everybody is going to have the skill that Chris may have to do that surgery and do it without complication, meaning two incision approach, being very careful with the dissection to avoid what I would call the major complications like a, a, a crossbone synostosis. And so, so that's part of the reason why, you know, the, the anterior approach has become so popular. There's a reason for that. You know, it's not just the fact that it's very simple. It also is the fact that it does avoid what we would call the major complications. There's no doubt you can see the major complications with a single anterior incision as well. But I think that when you look at the you know, the systematic reviews and the meta-analyses, they, they tend to point 
more towards major complications with a two incision approach, all things being equal. There's no doubt heterotopic ossification, you're gonna see it with a similar incidence, but that's minor heterotopic ossification. The big complications, including posterior neurosis nerve injuries, they still tend to have a bias towards the two incision technique. And part of it is because it requires in some ways more skill when you're, at, when you're uh, along the posterior aspect of the elbow. So, so it comes down to a balance of, you know, is it truly clinically that important to get, you know, a true anatomic repair and get that perfect supination strength and get that footprint perfectly repaired versus the difficulty and or the complication rate? And, and, and that's, I think, where people kind of struggle. You know, I, I tend to stick with the anterior incision. I would argue that with a two incision, when you're making the hole in the tuberosity, which most people do, and I don't think Chris does that, uh, he preserves the tuberosity, Chris will tell you just making a hole in the tuberosity decreases the lever arm because you're removing that bump, as he said. So even doing a two incision where you're repairing it and you're getting that exposure to the footprint, it also matters where you drill into that footprint. So it's not unique to just the anterior approach. And I don't know how many people, for example, aren't drilling holes into the tuberosity. I drill a hole in the tuberosity. I think most people do. And so it does come down to, I'm not going to argue that it's not clinically relevant. There probably is a clinical relevance to it. And like Mark was alluding to, it also comes down to, do people really feel it, right? Because the outcomes don't really show it, but the outcomes aren't necessarily as sensitive as you know, doing Cybex texting, you know, in different positions. So, so that, that would be my kind of, you know, counterpoint or counter argument that I would agree with Chris that, uh, that there is a difference, but I would also argue that not everybody has that skill set to be able to do that type of a repair and avoid those major complications that, that some of us fear that I think are more avoidable using a single anterior incision. Yeah, I think the literature really strongly reflects what, what you just said, that there's, I think, I think we're in a little bit of an interesting situation with the distal biceps where, where what, everything you said, Dr. is true, that we do get better supination strength with a two incision technique, but that there are, I, I'm sure that in your hands, that's, you know, that works great. But um, it's interesting, there was a, um, a study that Rafi Merzion did um, using, um, Kaiser data. I've always, I've always think Kaiser data better reflects like the general, the more general population orthopedic surgeons. Um, and they found four times the reoperation rate and higher PAN palsies and higher synostosis and um, significantly so in a series of about 800. So I've, um, I, I, I do think this is, we're in this interesting place where it's a, it's a balance. So you can't, you can't get everything you want probably with either, uh, either, either approach. Um, so I, I really appreciate you guys going through that to give us you know, to give our listeners the ideas of the ups and downs of each. Let's let's talk yeah, a little bit it, about post-operative protocol. Depends. Wait, let me just go back one sec. Oh, absolutely. It, it yeah, kind of depends on, it, it depends on what, uh, how you do it, you know, and, and education is, uh, it's not a, a time, a, a certain point in time. It's a continuum. And, and I would argue that mm -hmm. a posterior approach is not sticking a Kelly from the front of the elbow and palpating the back now and then making an incision over the Kelly and then forcefully bringing the, t the tendon down from, from anterior to posterior. And you don't know where they're bringing the tendon and you're, and you're scuffing up the ulna. So, so the first big break was when, when it was synostosis was as Maury says, don't, you know, don't take down the ulna. That was the original Boyd and Anderson idea and go, you know, go through muscle 
you know, go through the EDC, go through ECU with your Kelly. So, and then, so the, the, the technique is different now. We, we've, we go from the back to the front instead of the front from the back. And we know the dissections planes, you know, we just don't go anywhere. The other thing that's, that's really, you know, I did this for 14 years anteriorly. And I could tell you, I got the same more so anteriorly I do posteriorly. And you get less heterotopic bone posteriorly than you anterior when you look at the MRI. John's right, the location is different. It's the synostosis, it's the between the radius and all when you go posteriorly. They, they need, they probably need a second operation. If you go anteriorly, I've done this, you need, they, sometimes they need second operation too because they get a, a mountain. I mean, their whole, the whole biceps uh, ossifies. But I would say in the past 15 years, I've seen more people anterior than posteriorly. But the second key is, so the first key is, is knowing your surgical planes, ECU, this fascia I explained, and then the supinator. It takes you five minutes to get down there, really easy. The, 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 the second thing, though, is, is endomethacin. So I learned this the hard way. The first patient I presented, there was a resident uh, fellows conference and educational conference I presented as a case. My first patient I did from anterior to posterior because I was arguing with Scott Steinman. I said, I, you can get to anybody anteriorly, and Scott said, you can't. And so I said, okay, I'm going to try it posteriorly. And so my first case, I got bad heterotopic bone or a teacher. And I wound up calling him and Graham King, and I said, What's, what did I miss? And they said, you, did you give them endomethacin? And I said, no. And so I've been given endomethacin ever since, 75 milligrams, slow release, once a day for 14 days. And I haven't had um, a synostosis, knock on wood, you know, for a long time, since 2000, probably 11 or 10. And uh, so, <clears throat> so that's really key. I, I'm, I tell them they have to take that endomethacin. I say it's not a pain pill, and I draw a picture, and I say this bone can form, and you cost you another operation if you don't take this pill. And I, and I quiz everybody that comes in at two weeks, you take your pill. I took it, Doc. Now, I don't know if they're honest with me or they're, they just want to make me happy, but I haven't had a synostosis, so I think the majority are taking the pill. So, so that's one thing. The third thing is, is okay, I got conflicts there. I just designed a, a posterior kit for Arthrex, and it's got a curved cannulator passer to go from the back to the front, and it's got a, a, a dilator in it, and you can dilate your path along the bicipital tuber, the bicipital path. So it, so you you got everything under control. You're not blindly sticking a Kelly like, Mark says you, with the neurovascular bundles right there, uh, you're not, you know, you're not blindly, it's, it's, it's so you could uh, pass the tendon atraumatically. So there's, so I, I guess what John was saying historically is right. And Ra Ra Rafi um, was looking at, uh, uh, Merzion was, was, and the Kaiser from that, I was probably correct because there, you know, there are many different ways to do a posterior approach. And I think the anterior post more elegant, you know, initially because you have to get muscle planes. Posterior approach was just sticking a Kelly and from front to back and making a decision on it, but it's changed. It's you know you, now now we know where to go with it, and so I think it's a lot safer. So I think it's actually a lot easier to get to where you need to with a posterior approach, and it's a lot easier to pass the tendon for 
from front to back. And that's the key is passing to from front to back. But um, I don't know if Arthrex has got a video on it the, or the other or not on it. I think they, they may, but I don't know if they have the, this curved passer that, that we got developed. But there's a kit out now for it. But uh, in your, so, in your so kit, what's the fixation goes, method? It's, it's right there. I mean, the tuberosity is so right there. I mean, you cut the supinator, it's right there. And the downside is the supinator, and I'm, I'm working on that. And I got it. I presented a paper doing an endoscopic approach at the ASES, and I, I'm still having, and I've done it myself w without with going through a supinator with a scope. And there's, believe it or not, there's enough room that you can repair a distal biceps tendon endo with endoscopy. But I actually think, for safety reasons, we're probably a few years away from that. And I think it's going to be with a nanoscope as people start using uh, smaller scopes. Yeah, but um, but anyways, that's where I think it's going to go in the future. It's not there by far yet. But but the open safety approach is there, I think. You know, going through the ECU, not the EDC. You go in the EDC, you're asking for a PI in that policy. I agree completely with John. If you're in the wrong plane, you're asking. And that's what happens when you you pass it blindly. And if you scrape the bone... And don't clean up the ball, uh, the dust. And if you make a big drill hole, you know that causes heterotopia osteochondritis synostosis. But the approach that I have, John alluded to it. it it's an on top approach. It's uh, two buttons, and, I, and they, the buttons are intramedullary too. So you don't have to drill across to get into nerves. The buttons stay in the bone. And <clears throat> the guy from Berlin, I think Cybalist, looked at the different um, uh, different implants out there and did a, a time zero biomechanical study. And he, he did it with actually Peter Millett. And, and they, uh, they showed that two, two, two buttons is like the strong as the native tendon. Not, it's not as strong as the native tendon, but it's, it's still pretty good time zero strength. I don't think I have to dock it in a bone tunnel. I actually think that tuberosity is like Manhattan. It's a very valuable property, and I don't want to drill it away. But I think that also causes a little bit of synostosis when you make that drill hole, like a traditional, you know, uh, you know, uh, Boyd and Anderson approach. But so, anyways, that's my thoughts. So let's talk uh, fixation. It sounds like you're using two two endo buttons. I know a lot of people doing two incision are probably probably using bone tunnels, but as you mentioned, that's a problem with tuberosity. What about you, Dr. Ma? What are you using to fixate the tendon to the bone? So I, I'll, I'll tell you, I was going to just, and just to summarize one thing, I think that both John and Chris had mentioned, I think this is important, um, real quick on, uh, you know, heterotopic bone. Uh, and, and Chris kind of alluded to it when he said the drilling of the bone. I think when you drill that tunnel from an anterior approach, it's very important to wash out all the bone dust. Um, because if you don't, I think that's one of the reasons you get that uh, ossification of the biceps. And what Chris talks about is true. You'll see it almost creeping up the biceps and you can uh, see that. Usually it's of no consequence, but I think by washing that out thoroughly, by adding, I use a leave, not endomethacin, but I think it's, you know, for four weeks where I'll have them take a leave. And also that helps with post-operative swelling. For fixation, uh, at least for myself, uh, when we move to that uh, aspect of it, you know, we're relying on that endo button. So the endo button becomes almost like a, one of these pulleys. Uh, so that the biceps is shuttled down into the tunnel. Uh, and then I sew the tendon back on itself. And, and 
and I also add an interference screw. So, and I can tell you, you know, you hear some of these anecdotal reports of radial neck fractures or, um, you know, problems with these um, interference screws or osteolysis. And I've got a lot of x-rays on my patients over the years, and we've done some studies looking back at them. And when you look at that actual fixation method, and I, and I published on this, we had two re-ruptures, and both of those uh, weren't like just random events. One guy threw a keg at someone. Uh, he worked as a bouncer. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the other cases was a female bodybuilder who got in a fight with her boyfriend. So yes, you can re-rupture in that immediate post-operative period, but when you think that 98% of those patients do not re-rupture, that fixation method is sound. And I don't have one patient with a radial neck fracture personally in my series of patients that I've worked on. So, you know, that's the concern sometimes people will say with some of these you know, interference screws. I like to get an x-ray in the OR every time uh, once I've, I've got the button down because you know, you can get soft tissue interposition. Uh, there are other things that can occur or God forbid you're in the wrong place. So, you know, we're talking, okay, I've done 400 or maybe John's done several hundred and I'm sure Chris has too, but there are people who have put their endo buttons into the radial head. I've seen x-rays of that. So I think that making that part of your uh, surgical treatment that you are confirming the button is in the appropriate place, I think is very important. Now, it sounds like you're using a, a button on the far cortex. Is that, do you, do you think that that's mostly so you can use the screw or what, what do you think the advantage of a far cortical button is over a button in the endosteal canal as Dr. Schmidt mentioned earlier? Well, there, there's two reasons for that. Uh, if you think about it, if you have the button on the far cortex, you're going to have, you know, perhaps eight millimeters of tendon within your tunnel. So your surface area for uh, tendon bone healing has increased uh, quite a bit. Uh, and secondly, it allows me to put the screw. So you have a belt and suspenders type fixation. So I have, you know, not only the endo button, but I have an interference screw that wedges in. Uh, also. So I kind of like that. I think it adds some additional protection uh, when you're doing the repair. But I also think that tendon bone healing is one of these things we study and we study again. And uh, How long does it take? Is it 10 weeks? Is it 12 weeks? Is it 14 weeks? When does it really occur? And the larger the amount of surface area, the bigger the footprint, I think gives you a better opportunity to succeed. Dr. Fernandez, I know the technique you described is with a far cortical button. Is that still the technique you're using, and have you switched in or, or why? So I've, I've, uh, you know, since my original description, I've dabbled uh, and tried virtually every technique that's been described in every anchor just to see if there is a better mousetrap, uh, including the interference screw. Um, one of the reasons that the, the interference screw was also touted is it tends to medialize the tendon. When you put the screw in, Mark will tell you, it pushes the tendon more laterally or more medially, I should say, which would then go to Chris's point of improving the the, the pull rather than central. It kind of pushes the tendon out uh, medial. I don't know if, that, if that's clinically true, if that happens or not, but when you put the screw in, you can definitely see that. And if you take the time to hold the tendon out laterally, you can you can medialize the tendon a little bit. Um, the problem I have, I, I, I never saw any catastrophic problems with foreign body reaction or cystic resorption, 
but I, I took care of some for other patients that had had it done. And so it turned me off very quickly to the interference screw. Um, you know, there, that was also the old PGLA. Then, then we had PLLA screws, and now we're, we're at peak screws. But you still see resorption. It's not just in the elbow. Obviously, we're using these screws more in the knee than anywhere. And, and that literature is replete with, you know, resorption 40, 50, 60% with high incidence, but not necessarily clinically relevant. The difference in the knee uh, to the elbow, though, might be more substantial. But we're not, you know, a lot of people are using the interference screw, and we're not seeing a significant amount of failures with them. So I, I have nothing bad to say about it. But it does worry me, or, or I do get worried the same way I get worried about a synostosis. I worry about, you know, seeing this resorbed cavity um, around the um, around the screw. So I use, I still use a cortical button on the far, far cortex to parrot what Mark was saying. Um, I believe it improves the surface area. But here's another important point. There is gap formation, the same way we see it in flexor tendons with flexor tendon repairs. You get gap formation, especially if you're using a lot of suture throws, if you're using a Krakow, or if you're using a, a, a locking loop or a non-locking loop. You're going to get gap, just like when you tie your shoelaces and walk around your shoes, your shoes still loose after a while. So, so when you start cycling that tendon, that tendon before it heals will start to gap. If it's a small gap, the body can deal with that, a few millimeters. But if it's a large gap, I think that those are some of the ones that we're seeing that are then rupturing uh, later. Because just like a flexor tendon, at three or four weeks, all of a sudden they let go because there was too much of a gap and biologically they couldn't make up for it. So that's the worry that I have. But again, if you use, you know, exacting uh, technique, you pay attention to that, you make sure that all the loops are tied tight, you don't use an excessive amount of loops, you use the right kind of suture, you can minimize or avoid that. But that's my worry with doing, you know, a non-top repair where you're not, you know, uh, making a cavity for the tendon. And so I, I still make a cavity for the tendon, even though I, I do respect Chris's thoughts on that. I still do make a cavity in the tendon. And, and the idea being that if there is a little bit of a gap, the tendon is still held in very close proximity, if not still within the cavity. The cavity is typically about five to eight millimeters deep. And so you have more room if there is a little bit of a gap that occurs um, as the tendon starts to cycle. So that's, that's the reason I use the technique that I do. So let's talk about post-operative protocol. Is, um... Is everyone using a splint or is there anyone who's going immediately to a soft dressing? So everyone's using a splint. Okay, so probably that splint continues for a week or two. Dr. Schmidt, tell me what your protocol is then once the splint is removed. Okay, so so what I just want to uh, give, give John uh, kudos here. He, he's the one that first that I know of. Uh, you know, Greg Bain would argue this, but he he's the one that first, at least in America, that used a button to fixate the biceps tendon. And um, so I just want to, you know, I, I think that's good insight. And uh, I witnessed that. So anyways, um, so, uh, but that's probably one of the reasons why I, I kind of still use the buttons, probably is John influence. But uh, um, going back to what your question was, is that, um, I, uh, no one, if you look at the literature, it's really rare for people to get stiff nowadays. The fixation devices are, are really strong, and um, so no one gets stiff. So the risk for me is a, a rupture. And the ruptures, if you look in the literature, 
usually occur within their first six weeks. Otherwise, there's, there's hardly ever rupture. I don't think you can report. It'd be a reported case if you delayed rupture after six weeks from a distal biceps tendon. So, so what I do is, uh, is my, my recipe is they get a splint uh, for two weeks, 90 degrees, and supination. So the tendon heals the footprint. Because if, if it's wrapped, you maybe, you know, we did those MRI studies, it could heal anteriorly and we want to heal right at the footprint. And, um, and then, um, and then they come out and they get a plastic splint, a therapist makes, an occupational therapist makes a plastic splint. And then they take a, take a shower, they can take it off to eat, take it off when they go to bed. But, but I want them to wear that splint when, they, when they're out in the community. And it's just a, just a term not to use their operated arm. And then they come back at now six weeks, four weeks later, six weeks after surgery. And I send them to therapy without restrictions. Basically, I send them for, you know, endurance strengthening. And some people can be ready. I don't worry about it. And I send them to weight room at, at three months. Some people, it takes six months. So that's, that's a recipe. And it's based on the fact that I think if you make it past six weeks, it's good to go. And if we're in my hands where failures occur, it's before six weeks. And hardly anybody, you know, it'd be really super rare to lose motion, lose form or elbow motion. So that's it. Dr. Fernandez, what about you? Would you, Do you agree that at six weeks, people can be kind of turned loose with no restrictions? Or do you have restrictions beyond that point? Yeah, at six weeks, um, I, I like to start strengthening at six weeks, but I still keep it light. You know, again, like flexor tendons, um, I think that a tendon under some load heals better and faster, um, kind of like a wolf slaw for the tendon. And so, so I do like to put them with a little bit of weight. I start, you know, motion at a week or two. Um, it's interesting uh, that Chris puts them in supination. I actually put them in a little bit of pronation. Um, and I have, I'm actually currently doing a study to, sh to, to see if the repair is actually more protected in pronation. There is actually not a lot of tension at the repair site. The biceps, if you passively, you know, the, the original study that I did where I described the technique, I also looked at what was the amount of force. If you just pulled on the biceps against gravity and you pulled on the arm, how many newtons of force did that require? And then comparing that to the pullout strength of the techniques that were available at the time. And it's very, very low. So unless you're co-contracting and you're pulling against something, um, it's very hard to rupture it unless there's been a technical failure with the repair. So, so I let them start doing active assisted range of motion very, very quickly within a week or two. I use an orthoplast splint. I don't use a hinge brace. I do, um, uh, limit them in terms of terminal extension until about week three, four, or, or six, depending on, you know, how stiff do they feel, how sore are they coming out in the extension. Um, so the recipe kind of varies depending on the patient. Uh, but at six weeks, I do let them sit, start seeing force. And then typically I'll cut them loose to the gym at 10 to 12 weeks. That's when I'll let them go to contact sports like basketball, or I'll let them start lifting weight depending on their comfort level at about 10 or 12 weeks. Like Chris pointed out, most of the ruptures occur really in the first two to three weeks. And so um, and then you'll see some laggers that go beyond that. But um, 
So active assisted motion without resistance, you're not going to see re-ruptures with that unless unless they they're truly doing something with resistance. Um, there are you know there have been uh, a few studies that have showed no splinting, you know, just basically put them in a sling and cut them loose. I I, I don't do that. Um, I, I just you know I don't see the utility to that. So I, I do hold them back a little bit with the with the splint, but I also am aggressive with the active assisted motion early on. Dr. Milo, anything anything you would add? Any other pearls here for um, post-operative rehab? You know, I I think this is very interesting. You have because I do it a little bit different, but that all of us have the same principles in mind, but we vary a little bit on our post-operative protocol. I think that what I'm hearing from the, the group is that you protect it for the first, you know, say seven to ten days, maybe two weeks, because maybe there's some soft tissue swelling. The patient's more comfortable in a splint. Uh, you won't get the phone call back to the office, which we all try to avoid because then you have to answer those. Uh, so I think splinting is important. I, I go back to like, don't like splints that are at 90 degrees because you can get maceration of tissue or problems in the antecubital fossa. So I kind of always have my splint more at a 70 to 60 degree mark because I think it keeps that tissue from being exposed to moisture or sweat, that type of thing. I include the hand because I've seen in the past what I've worked with, now I'm not working with residents now, but if you, if you keep the hand out, sometimes they make it too tight and the hand looks like uh, sausage fingers or something if you're not careful. So I think it's important to include the hand in the splint, whether you supinate it or, or, or pronate it or keep it in neutral, I don't think, maybe for Chris's technique, because that's what he's doing, it may be more a little more important, but I think that you want to include the hand. It, at the two week mark, I when they come back, I do just a wound check and I've been using just the range of motion brace from 30 to 130 so they avoid terminal extension just because I've always done it that way and, and it's, it's pretty quick and easy and it's off the shelf and uh, that just lets them, reminds them of what they have, have done and most of my patients, at least now down in Tampa where we got Rob Gronkowski now, uh, they know what a Gronkowski brace is so they're like excited about their Gronkowski brace now, they can have something like Rob. And then I, I send them to therapy also at six weeks, and it's very light strengthening. I, I agree 100% with John. I mean, you don't want to not get some uh, load on that, that tendon. I, I keep it to high repetitions, low weight. Uh, and I really make my uh, advance to the weight room at about four to six months. So it's a little later than three months, but for me, it's about four to six months. Yeah, Mark. Mark, I just want to add, please. Um, I think that it's interesting. I do the same thing with the splint. I didn't mention the position of the splint, but I put them at about uh, 50 degrees, more or less, kind of mid-position flexion, um, actually almost like right from the OR, unless it's, you know, a hyperflexed repair or an allograft repair. But the primary repair, I'm putting them in a little bit of extension. Uh, part of it is I worry about the ulnar nerve being flexed with swelling and like you've been pointing out maceration and also because I do start the early active range of motion or early assisted motion they tend to be more loose at that point when you get them in that position and I when I do my repair I put the elbow in full extension on the table you know before I do the repair I let the tourniquet down then once I confirm I don't have bleeding I complete the repair and then I cycle the arm on the table. I put them in full extension. I want to see if there's a gap. I want to see, you know, how much tension is on the biceps. And so I put them in, you know, like I said, a mid position of extension and flexion. Now I don't let them necessarily 
um, extend beyond that for the first four to six weeks because I do want to be a little bit proactive. But if they're comfortable at three or four weeks and in therapy, I'm noticing that they're able to extend. I'll let them extend fully, you know, very quickly. So I'm not worried about the tension on the repair. Super interesting. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of parallels there, but certainly some little variations between each of you that um, I think our, our listeners could listen to and, and pick, pick their choices to see what they care about most about. Let's talk about the chronic reconstruction. I, I think one of the things that makes these so challenging is the, as you mentioned, the dissection earlier, but there's also the question of how you get the muscle reconnected to the bone. So Fernandez, what's your preferred graft here? How do you affix the graft to the bone? How do you fix it to the tendon? Do you have any pearls for us about the chronic reconstruction? So, um, so what what I've done is, for, first of all, on all repairs, this is another pearl. On all repairs, even if they're primary repairs, I have a graft available. Um, I've been burned once or twice where the patient told me, uh, and it was one recently where he told me it was an acute repair. He described it, it was work comp. I think that was part of the issue, and it was clearly chronic. It was much older than what he said it was. And, um, and that's a case where it saved my butt, where I had the allograft available. So on these cases, I would just automatically have an allograft available. The other thing that that's nice to do is, um, is that they're used to that, meaning they just see the word distal biceps and they know that they have to check for the allograft. So it's not just on your chronic cases. So that's just another quick pearl. Um, I make a big deal about restoring the tendon length and there's, um, a few studies that look at the intrinsic and the extrinsic length of the of, uh, biceps tendon, um, which is roughly about six centimeters extrinsic, the external um, tendon length. And so if I go in there and I can get something close to that, then I might not resort to um, a, 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 a graft, in which case I'm not afraid to hyperflex them. Maury showed it very well you can flex them beyond 90 degrees. He had a few cases where he flexed them to 100, no flexion contractures. So, um, so I'm not afraid of uh, repairing them in hyperflexion. It does make it more difficult to do the repair if you're doing it anteriorly in hyperflexion. So that's one thing to take into account. Um, in terms of the graph that I use, uh, I typically will use a semi-tendinosis um, uh, allograft, um, just it's just what I've always done. I know some people will use autograft. I know some people will use FCR tendon. Um, some people like Achilles. Um, I use a semitendinosis graft. And if it's a real big arm, the nice thing I like about the semitendinosis graft is that there's enough length that I can actually double it. And then I use a pulver tap weave proximally with at least three weaves into the intrinsic part of the tendon because the intrinsic part of the tendon is very deep in the biceps. It's buried in the muscle. And that's what you really have to get purchased into. It's not the muscle. If you dig down deep, there's a very robust tendon over a segment of about six centimeters that you can't even see, but you can get to it on the undersurface of the tendon. So, so those are my you know, tips. The, the main one being restoring the length of the tendon and then experimenting with how does that feel when you're docking it in terms of what position the arm is against gravity um, and then going from there. Dr. Schmidt, uh, what about you? Talk about your chronic reconstruction. What's your preferred graph? Any tips for how to get this difficult case done? Yes. Yeah, so, so what I use is uh, I, I, I used to use uh, semi-tendinosis autographs, and if they want that an autograph, that's what I'll do. But but otherwise, what I do is uh, I take an 
Achilles tendon allograft, and then he divided into three um, on the allograft part, um, approximately divided into three slips. And, uh, and then I, I pass each of the slips behind the, uh, the, ten, the tendon part that John's talking about. And then I suture the slip, muscle, tendon to each other. So I just compress each of the slips down and suture them to themselves. And it, it's, it actually works out. It's a pretty robust uh, muscular tennis, a myotennis repair there. And then, and then I, um, I pass it, like I, I just described before, um, from, uh, along the bicephal path from, uh, from front to back. Now it's, it's kind of like sometimes it's a big dig. You know, there's a lot of scar tissue down there and sometimes you have to, you know, spend time and this is, this is what you want to do with Mark was saying. You got big, big incisions and, um, and you want to make sure you know where the neurovascular bundles are. But I, I, I'll dissect down such that I could easily feel the radial uh, uh, um, um, tuberosity in the front, and you know even visualize it. And so you kind of, I kind of almost think sometimes maybe I should quit here and just stick it, stick it right there, and do an anterior approach. But I don't. So what I do is I flex the arm up 90, and I make a, a again an incision through the ECU, and the um, and I pass the uh, the graft uh, from front to back, and I mark it. And uh, it's about what John's saying that the graph length is probably around about about six centimeters, what Greg Bain said. But but I mark it and I put the arm at about 80 degrees, and uh, and I and then I go back, I bring the tendon back out the front, I cut the tendon where I marked it, and I put in the two short and long head sutures, and then I repass it, and then I I fix it with the two cortical buttons. You know the the buttons are not Endo buttons are specially made to flip inside the the canal, so they have, you know, over the last you know like five years, they really refined the buttons to have really reliable intracortical buttons. And so I, I do the same. So the fixation technique is the same as I do primary as a, as a chronic graft. And what I've noticed is that you know they do really well actually. And um, what's 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 great is your kinematics are the same like. Like if you have a, a, a if you if you watch people with a um, a, um, a biceps rupture or a bad biceps repair or a failed graft, what they'll do is when you give them a supination task, they'll use shoulder adduction as a supinator. So you got to you got to you got to it's got to affect their golf swing or some other thing that we don't know about. But it's it's really they they use their shoulder adduction to supinate. But when you do these chronic Chronic re reconstructions of graft, they they normalize their kinematics, and, and their strike returns pretty well. I'm surprised how how well they do, and um, but but that's what I do, you know. And, and it's really the well, the other quick is you have to tension it. It's easier for me because I can pull the tendon out, and there, it's not a lot of bulk in the front. You know, what I mean, I don't have to worry about the front, and I'll actually repair the front incision before I um, before I fixate the graft in the back before I fixate the final graft in the back so I don't have to fight myself in the antecubital fossa to, to repair the skin or do any work in there but um, but it would but you want to pull the muscle down now there's been one that that was really like nine years old that was really small and admit I I, I, um, I tensioned too much and I think the patient split his muscle a little bit 
but he wound up doing okay. You know, he kind of like you cosmetically could see his muscle really stretch out. But but the but I think majority of people, I, I tension 80 degrees. I think that's the key. You got to get a tension almost in high flexion. You're kind of doing a high flexion repair that that the out of at the Mayo Clinic showed. You know, what I mean, you're doing it with the graph. What about you, Dr. Mile? What's your graph choice? Any any pearls for the chronic reconstruction? Yeah, so it's interesting you asked me, Peter, because uh, I, I think I'm a lot like John in the use of the semi-tendinosis, but I am actually looking at my um, chronic repairs right now. So what I've done is excluded any high flexion angle repair. I mean, that's a whole different topic, if you can still get it. And to Chris's point, high flexion angle repairs, you've got to be careful about closing the anterior wound. <laughs> And what I've done with the high flexion angles, it's the one time I don't uh, use the endo button. Uh, I actually weave a tape, uh, one or two tapes or number five uh, fiber wire through the tendon. And when it's flexed up at 70, I have two drill holes. So I still bring in the tunnel, but I tie over the bo a, a bone bridge uh, for that because I can do it with the arm flexed up a little bit more. I feel like I could dock that tendon down into it. Then I kind of peek around the front, but it's going to be hard to close the wound. But I've got 14 cases now that I've done semi-tendinosis reconstructions or the ones that I couldn't fix with a high flexion angle or, or primary repair. Um, I first fixate the tendon into the radial tuberosity, and then I, I pulver tap the tendon, much like John uh, described, uh, and multiple passes. Uh, there is that nice, robust piece of tendon that's still in that muscle. Um, I think that one of the things when you do it and I learned this uh, from talking to you know, Ramsey in, in Philly is that, you know, when you actually um, do that, you should, because it will stretch out a little bit, it's better to do it with, uh, when you actually tension it, the pulver tap, to have the elbow at about uh, probably 45 to 60 degrees when I'm actually doing that pulver tap weave. And you'll find even when you do that, you kind of let it go back out straight, it still gets pretty close to being straight when you, when you do that kind of repair. Um, big incision. Uh, I, I extend along the neurovascular bundle medial. I think that's a little more cosmetic when you kind of come across and have your proximal extension medial, you know, in line with the crease, then distal, um, a little bit lateral. Uh, nice dissection distally to free up the lateral endobrachial nerve. And what I'm doing now is I'm going to look back at 14 ones that I've done uh, without uh, this allograft tendon and compare that to the allograft tendon patients to see how much they like or dislike it or if there's much of a difference when you look at you know scores so that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what i do with the uh, chronic repairs well i um i think that's probably about as much time as we have i i really can't tell you how much i appreciate you all for coming on the podcast um, I appreciate your time. I think that the pearls you provide to our listeners are going to be really stimulating to them and um, will be super valuable as they approach these cases. Um, for all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and um, we will see you next time.